Wouldn't it be nice if we had an amendment to give civil rights to women? To once and for all. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is December 13th, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Amendment, Addressing Gender Inequity in Academic Emergency Medicine. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. He is an emergency physician and the creator of the FOMED project called The First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGM, Justin. And it's so good to be back on the SGM with you, Ken. It's been way too long. Well, you, you did take some time away from the old SGM hot off the press team to focus on family. How's life? Man, thanks for asking. It's actually amazing right now. I, I really did enjoy taking this brief FOMED paternity leave to spend a little bit of time with my boy, Theo. But you know, now he's nine months old. He's old enough to dive into the medical literature with me. So I read him a little bit out of uh, our favorite journals every night. But for some reason, he still really prefers the hungry pet caterpillar. Don't know why. Well, that very hungry caterpillar book was one of our kids' favorites. But we're not here to do a critical appraisal of a children's board book. Today, we're going to do the final SGEM hot off the press episode for 2021. So please get us started with a case. So at the completion of her one-month elective in your rural emergency department, you're discussing career plans with a medical student. She says that she's very interested in emergency medicine, but she isn't sure if it's the right choice for her. She's worked in five emergency departments so far, and a man filled almost every leadership position. She also just got back from a major emergency medicine conference, and more than 90% of the speakers were white males. She loves the clinical work in emergency medicine, but she's worried that these apparent gender inequities will limit her career opportunities. Gender equity is something we've spoken about often on the SGEM. Some listeners are happy we cover this topic, while others, let's just say they've expressed concern. Now, we recognize this is an emotional issue. Our position is gender inequity exists in the House of Medicine, and it should be an issue everyone's interested in addressing. We will include a list on the blog of previous SGEM episodes that discuss gender equity. You know, I find it hard to believe that some people still deny the significant gender inequities that currently exist in medicine. There is a lot of literature. Women are underrepresented in leadership positions. Women are less likely to be given senior academic promotions. There are fewer women in the editor positions of our major academic journals. Women receive less grant funding. Women are paid less than men, even after accounting for potential confounders. Yeah, and we're not going to make any statements unless we can back them up. So, Justin, I know that you have references for every single claim you just made. Absolutely. A recent Twitter poll had more than one-third of respondents saying they did not think a physician gender pay gap existed in their emergency department. And it's hard to move forward and address a problem when a significant portion of physicians do not recognize that a problem exists. Despite some people denying a gender pay gap even exists in the House of Medicine, the literature does describe many factors that contribute to gender inequity. Institutional policies related to promotion or advancement 
may inherently disadvantage women and are likely exacerbated by implicit bias and stereotyping. There are an insufficient number of women in current leadership positions, which results in fewer mentors and role models for women early in their careers. Policies around parental leave and emergency childcare and breastfeeding support, they all affect women disproportionately. Unfortunately, sexual harassment is also still widely documented in emergency medicine and has a major impact on career advancement and attrition. The reasons for this gender gap are complex and probably not completely understood. Existing gender balance within specialties, among other aspects of that hidden curriculum, likely influence career decisions, with women trainees more likely to enter lower-paying specialties. Honestly, personally, I think this is one of the reasons that all doctors probably should be paid about the same. That's a topic for another day. Current leadership positions, again, are dominated by males who then, consciously or not, might be more supportive of other males for future promotions. Furthermore, there are numerous gender differences that are well-known, both internal and external, that influence both salary expectations and the negotiations. Female physicians are more likely to have female patients, and medical pay structures are often inherently biased. For example, Justin, you and I both work in Ontario, and where we work, a biopsy of the penis pays about 50% more than a biopsy of the vulva. Similarly, incision and drainage of a scrotal abscess pays twice as much as an incision and drainage of a vulvar abscess. Yeah, I was sort of shocked and embarrassed by that Ontario uh, data, I gotta tell you. There is some data that suggests that practice patterns do vary between women and men. In primary care, for example, women are more likely to address multiple issues during a single appointment. And they're more likely to provide emotional support and address psychosocial issues, and they're a little bit less likely to perform procedures. I don't know about you, Ken, but those, that's exactly what I want in my primary care physician. Unfortunately, most medical payment models mean that that, that practice ends up being paid less. And of course, all of this that we've been talking about occurs in a larger societal context in which women perform far more unpaid labor outside of medicine, resulting in a much larger overall workloads, most of which is often overlooked. For a wonderful book on this topic, consider reading Invisible Women by Caroline Perez. Unfortunately, too often when I hear about this issue, I actually think that women end up being blamed for the gender pay gap. It's true that on average, women work fewer hours and are more likely to work part-time. However, this difference in work is not enough by itself to explain the pay gap. For example, one study found that women earn 36% less than their male colleagues, despite only working three hours less per week. It's also not true that women earn less because they're less efficient. Data from Ontario reveals that female surgeons earn 24% less per hour spent operating, despite completing procedures in the same amount of time as men. The difference seems to derive from women performing less lucrative procedures. So in my mind, I can say this very clearly. We have a problem in medicine. I don't think there's any denying the current state of gender inequity. Solutions, while in some cases probably glaringly obvious, 
in other cases are probably rather complex. Solutions are unlikely to be a one-size-fits-all. The needs and desires of individual women will obviously be far more varied and far more complex than the quote-unquote average woman. And we should always be wary about unintended consequences when we implement social policy. However, those are not excuses. The data speaks for itself. Action is needed, and action is needed now. The first step is to acknowledge the current problem widely and openly. This would be aided with transparent reporting on physician payment stratified by gender. It is worth noting that gender is not the only source of inequity in medicine, and this same data should be used to examine other factors such as race or disability. We also need better training about bias in medicine, especially for those in leadership positions. We need to consider more egalitarian interview processes where leadership are blinded to characteristics like gender or race. We need to consider the impacts of systemic discrimination and recognize that simply being fair in a single hiring decision is probably not good enough because it doesn't account for the incredibly different paths that candidates took to reach the same point. Yeah, we need to fix the biases in medicine. And there are biases in the billing codes and referral patterns. We need better parental benefits and a system to ensure career advancement can continue even when one is taking time to raise children. So yeah, there's clearly a lot that needs to be done on this topic, Ken, but I am very cognizant that so far it is two white males that have been discussing this issue. Neither of us are experts in this topic. So I think we better get into the meat of this episode and start talking to our guest, who is truly the expert. Yeah, we've got to have some insight into the fact that for the last 10 minutes, it's been two middle-aged white guys talking about this. But that's why I think it is everyone's issue. But you're right. Let's get an expert into the program. So what's the clinical question we're asking? So the clinical question this time around is, what can be done about gender inequity in emergency medicine? And what's the reference? So we have uh, by Dr. Lee and et al. Addressing Gender Inequities, Creation of a Multi-Institutional Consortium of Women Physicians in Academic Emergency Medicine, obviously in AEM, December 2021, because it's hot off the press. And there's no real PICO statement for this publication. We also normally do a quality checklist to probe the publication for its validity. No such checklist exists for this type of study. It is still worth thinking critically about their methodology to consider the intrinsic and extrinsic validity of their discussion. When considering whether to develop a similar program, there are three major questions to consider. Number one, does this program accomplish its intended goals? The second question, will the results here extrapolate to other settings? And then the third question, what are the costs and alternative options? So let's talk a little bit about the methods. Yeah, so this article describes the creation of a multi-institutional consortium of women faculty in emergency medicine to promote career advancement and to address issues of gender inequity. This consortium brought together female faculty from four hospitals associated with the Harvard Medical School. Now, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show, and we have been talking for far too long without her being on the program. So let's hear about the program directly from her. 
But to begin with, here's her introduction. Dr. Lee is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Boston's Children's Hospital and an associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to the SGEM. Hi, I'm excited to be here. So you obviously just listened to our very lengthy introduction, uh, but obviously neither Ken or I have experienced any of these issues firsthand. Uh, so I guess let's just start by asking you, do you think there's anything else that's important to add to this background material that we've just gone over? Well, first, thank you for continuing to highlight these gender inequities in medicine, and also really for trying to take that next step to work to figure out some solutions to this very complex problem. Although there are some things as an individual that can be done, many, if not most, of the solutions really need to be at the departmental leadership, institutional, and systemic level. So Dr. Lee, what's the history behind this project and why did you think that there was a need for this type of program? Thanks for asking that question. Under our medical school, there are actually five different institutions with separate emergency departments. Four of them are adult or general emergency departments, and one, where I work, is pediatric specific. And it turns out, over the last five to ten years, four of these five hospitals had either formally or informally developed women faculty groups for career support. In fact, one of them sort of started kind of in the shadows because they were afraid there may be some repercussions for having this women's faculty group, but then over time realized that it was something that was recognized and actually um, encouraged by their departmental leadership. Then in 2018, several women from the different institutions came together and they more formally formed this Harvard Medical School Women in EM Consortium. So even though we all have the same affiliation under the same medical school, we all worked at different institutions and had no other formal relationships together. So can you briefly describe the consortium and the curriculum that you ultimately developed? Sure. So at the beginning, it started very simply. They had site champions from each site. So I was one of the site champions from Boston Children's Hospital, and we had at least two and sometimes more at each site. And that was sort of the leadership. Uh, and we didn't have a more formal governance structure beyond that, although we're working on that now. And then basically, we had an informal needs assessment and some literature reviews and developed some events like a networking event and some leadership skills training based on what the faculty felt like they wanted. And we also developed some systems for information sharing for important policy information among the hospitals. A couple of the hospitals wanted to know, well, what are your materna maternity leave and family leave policies? Do you have supports for breastfeeding? And these were ways uh, for us to share information to see how we could improve those policies. And indeed, one of the hospitals was able to improve their policies around maternity leave and breastfeeding supports based on information from the other hospitals. And then basically the goals and priorities were developed using an iterative cycle, using this identify the problem, uh, learn more about it, develop a way to address the problem, and then assess our educational initiative. And this basically formed the initial activities we've planned for the consortium. Well, before we get into the results section and then start peppering you with nerdy questions, can you give us the actual conclusion from your paper? Sure. I'll quote our actual conclusion, which states, this consortium building model could be used to enhance existing 
institutional career development structures for women and other physician communities in academic medicine with unique career advancement challenges. All right, Justin, let's bring you back in and let's talk about the results. So in the 2020 academic year, you had a total of 80 female faculty representing 37% of the total EM faculty involved in this consortium. You ran multiple career development events and organized a larger conference. Unfortunately, COVID, of course, it's always COVID. The the pandemic derailed some of the in-person events, but uh, quite amazingly, you managed to continue on, like all of us know now, these quarterly virtual events. So Dr. Lee, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the challenges you faced during this process? Well, as you can imagine, since we are all working in places where it goes 24 hours a day, 365 days, it was actually hard to schedule things where we could have enough people to make it worthwhile having any sort of meeting. But basically we've decided, you know, we're not going to get a majority of people. We try to send out, save the dates several months in advance. Uh, And we're scheduling them at different times. Sometimes it's in the evening, sometimes it's in the afternoon to try to get, you know, different people based on their schedules. It's also difficult to meet the individual needs of all participants across all the different career stages. So we certainly have junior faculty, you know, mid-level and then more senior faculty. Some are more clinically oriented, some are more academic. So how do we meet all those needs? And We also don't have a formal budget, which again, this is a process we're working on now, and that makes sustainability challenging for this type of organization. Yeah, so you've already started touching on this a little bit, but I think to be explicit, it will really help listeners. What are the key lessons that you would pass along for people trying to replicate your success? Absolutely. Well, I think there are four areas that really need to be established early on, again, to have a good structure and to maintain sustainability. And that's to develop a formal leadership structure, figure out what your finances are going to look like, have somebody in charge of communications and a curriculum development process. And the formal leadership structure will ensure accountability and that in turn will improve sustainability of the group and also provides leadership opportunities, which you can put on your CV. Obviously, a formal budget with ongoing funding is important for group sustainability. Right now, we're in Zoom, but you know, when we're back in person, we'll definitely want money for food as well as a place. And we started a smartphone texting group, but we really didn't have somebody who was in charge of that. So that kind of fell by the wayside. So having a communications director to really make sure that everybody's getting messaging in a, a consistent way is important. And then, of course, you know, we're an academic, so we need to adopt a formal process for curriculum development and also assessment and evaluation to make sure what we're doing is actually meeting the needs of our members and ultimately meeting the goals of the group. Well, part of your publication was a figure that showed a, the consortium curriculum development model, and it had four things going around in a circle for your consortium curriculum cycle. I was wondering if you could just Uh, describe those to the listeners, and then I'll put the actual picture figure in the blog. Well, thanks for this question. So this basically was an iterative cycle for the development, establishment, and curriculum planning for our consortium. So the first step was to identify what our core issues were. So for example, one of the issues we identified, which you touched on before, were gender-based salary inequities. So after we have identified the issue, then we want to learn some strategies. So 
when we identified the salary inequities, we decided we needed a negotiation skills workshop that would help each of us hopefully negotiate for better um, salary equity. So identify, learn, and then develop. Once we've learned some strategies, then we can develop and integrate progress. So example, using this negotiation skills workshop to augment our skills for our salaries. And then finally, uh, the ultimate goal of, of course, is to assess the outcomes. And in a more proximal way, we just did a post-workshop survey to see how, about confidence and knowledge around negotiation of the consortium members. But again, the long-term goal would be to see if we actually do achieve better equity around our salaries. Now we're getting into my favorite section of the podcast. And this is the part of the SGEM hop critical appraisal process to have at least five nerdy questions to ask the lead author. I hope you're ready for this. And it usually helps us better understand the publication. So Justin and I are going to alternate back and forth with five questions for you, Dr. Lee. And I think Justin, you're going to go first. Yeah. So the first question I had was about representativeness. Uh, So we know women are significantly underrepresented in academic emergency medicine. And this consortium brought together a group of women who hold academic positions at one of the most prestigious medical schools in the world. You are, by definition, outstanding. So how well should we expect your experiences and solutions to extrapolate to women who are working in other settings? Well, when we wrote this article, we actually want to extrapolate it not just to women in emergency medicine and maybe not even just to women. We wanted to highlight other groups who might feel somewhat marginalized or underrepresented. So although the women in our consortium were very fortunate to be working where we are, but at the end of the day, working women have many, if not all, of the same challenges. How do you provide excellent clinical care? while maintaining or increasing your academic productivity, while also caring for your family and loved ones, and then in this era of self-care, for yourself. From talking to women in academic medicine around the country in all different specialties, I really do think all of us have the same experiences. We all need support in academic productivity, networking, and leadership skills, as well as work-life integration. So I really do feel our solutions can be extrapolated to not only women in other settings, but to other groups who may feel less empowered. Well, my question for you is about trainees. This group chose to focus exclusively on faculty members rather than including trainees for a variety of reasons that were explained in the paper. I wonder how these lessons might translate to trainees and perhaps more importantly, ways in which you think the needs of trainees might be different? Well, we all know trainees have fewer academic demands and don't have the same considerations for promotion and leadership like faculty do. However, they also have a much heavier clinical demand, which makes work-life integration already a huge challenge in emergency medicine even greater. But they have very different needs, including needing to learn from role models and having different types of social supports as well as learning career development and professionalism skills. So our next question is about the differences between individual and group needs. This is always one of the hardest things to apply in evidence-based medicine because the average patient is not average. The average woman is not average. So in the paper, you mentioned that 
one challenge was meeting the professional and personal needs of all the participating individuals. Even when groups have a very strong shared identity, that shared identity is always going to be somewhat overwhelmed by the diversity of individuals who make up that group. So I wonder if you can comment on that tension that might exist between you know, a shared group identity and then the individual identities when approaching career advancement in medicine. Absolutely. This is something that we are consciously thinking of as we develop our curriculum. So although our consortium members are all in academic emergency medicine, each individual does have their own career and their own career goals. As I mentioned before, some are much more clinically and less academically focused. Others are the opposite. So when the shared group identity is focused on career advancement, there may be some tension with those in primarily clinical careers, but we do our best to embrace the diversity of careers in the group and also the different stages of careers in the group the best we can. And sometimes that means we have to you know, break out into different areas of interest or different uh, levels of faculty. And so rather than all having big group activities, sometimes we can break it down so shared interests can meet together. Our fourth nerdy question is about best future approaches. You make it clear in the article that solutions to gender inequity need to come from both the current leadership and from women seeking academic promotion. I think we need to be pursuing every option to close this gender gap in emergency medicine. I wonder if you have insight into what approaches might offer the biggest return on investment for institutions just starting on this journey? Well, first, there must be intentionality. I think the journal, Academic Emergency Medicine, has been quite successful in being intentional in increasing awareness about gender inequities in emergency medicine. Similarly, institutions must be intentional in their interviewing practices for trainees and faculty to increase diversity and in building pipeline programs to increase diversity in medicine in general. And finally, they need to be intentional in achieving transparency around salaries, promotion, and leadership development. If you don't even know there are inequities in your department, then you can't even begin to work on them. For example, for academic promotions, departments should critically examine how they are doing with academic rank in their faculty based on career track and years of service as faculty. Then they should be intentional in working with the individual faculty to improve equity in their academic ranking, including with mentorship, coaching, and sponsorship as needed. So our final nerdy question is about translation into long-term goals. This program appeared to be quite successful in the short term in generating engagement and developing the career skills for female faculty. How successful do you think these early successes will be in generating the desired gender equity in emergency medicine in the long run? Well, we are asking ourselves the exact same question. Currently, our leadership group is developing metrics for the consortiums so we can hopefully measure our successes in gender equity over time, although it may be a long time, and hopefully we can publish again in academic emergency medicine or elsewhere. But ultimately, I think we will be successful. At the individual level, we will be providing useful skills and actionable changes. And as a consortium, we will work with our department leaders to continue to intentionally work on gender inequity issues related to salary, academic rank, and leadership. Then hopefully this will also contribute to other important issues like faculty retention and physician well-being. But ultimately the goal is not about promotion, right? 
but about providing optimal care for our patients. And working towards diversity in medicine, not just around gender, is essential for us to achieve that goal. Well, those were our five nerdy questions, but we like to throw one in at the end and say, is there anything else you think the SGEM audience should know about your study and its limitations? I do want to acknowledge that formation of our consortium was an important first step, but one of the major limitations was we didn't have a true formal governance structure at the beginning, just the leadership group comprised of the site champions. So one of the important lessons learned is to really develop that formal governance structure from the beginning, but we're changing that now, which I know will improve the ultimate sustainability and success of the group. All right. Thank you, Dr. Lee, for answering our nerdy questions. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. Again, I think we generally agree with their overall conclusion. Well, Justin, give us an SGEM bottom line. So we have to acknowledge that significant gender inequities currently exist in emergency medicine. We applaud the authors for their tremendous work and hope that these efforts will eliminate gender inequities for the next generation of doctors. Now, you gave us a case at the beginning. Can you resolve that case? Yeah, this was always a difficult one for me, but you end up discussing the data on gender inequity across medicine with this medical student and turn the discussion towards possible solutions. You encourage the student to reach out to the amazing female faculty at Harvard who created this excellent consortium to address issues on gender inequity and offer to help support this student in her effort to change the culture of emergency medicine from within. And how are you going to take this publication that is hot off the press and apply it? I think this is a really interesting publication to review, and I think everybody really needs to consider if we can apply some of these ideas in our own workplaces. Now, usually I just get you know, the guest skeptic to talk about clinical application, but we do have Dr. Lee here as an expert. So Dr. Lee, how do you think SGEM listeners should apply this publication into their department or institution? You should form a group. We literally give you a playbook on table four on how to establish a career advancement consortium. And although we use women faculty as an example, this guideline really can be used for any group with a shared background who's interested in career support and advancement. Or you can just start with data on faculty academic ranking and salaries to see where the inequities are. Then you can develop a plan to start addressing them. Okay, Justin, I like how we got the lead author in there. So I'm going to do the same thing when we talk about what do you tell the medical student? So I'll get you to go first. And then Dr. Lee, think, think about what you would say to the medical student as an expert in gender inequity. Yeah, so I really want to know what Dr. Lee says, because again, I would think I would have trouble in the moment. But I think it's important we would acknowledge that gender inequity exists in the house of medicine. I think I would, we could talk about how there are many people who are really trying to address this serious issue and implement some solutions. While this change may not be happening quickly enough, I think I would encourage this medical student to select the area of medicine that interests her the most. Dr. Lee? Yes, so I tell the medical student, change will come slowly, but I personally do feel it is coming. And as the three of us know, emergency medicine is one of the most gratifying, but also one of the most challenging jobs a person could have. But if that's where her passion lies, I would not let gender inequity prevent her from pursuing it. Instead, I would challenge her to be part of the solution. Only by increasing diversity in emergency medicine, including in the numbers of women, can we work together towards gender equity and ultimately improved care, 
of our patients. Okay, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Dr. John Carter. He is an EM consultant from Scotland. He knew delirium prevention, detection, and treatment in emergency medicine settings was the other scoping review published by the Geriatric Emergency Care Applied Research, or GEAR, network. Justin, what do you have for a question this week? Well, trying to stay on topic, we'll ask, who was the first female to formally train in emergency medicine in North America? Great question. So if you know the answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. And by the way, I've got new prizes for 2022. And as part of the SGM hop process, it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on gender equity? People have not been shy before to share their comments. But if you could tweet your comments using hashtag SGMHOP, and if you have questions for Dr. Lee and her team, just ask them on the SGM blog. She'll be standing by to respond. And of course, the best social media feedback will be published in AEM. And also, don't forget, if you're a subscriber to Academic Emergency Medicine, you can head over to that AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and the article. We'll put that process in the SGEM blog. Well, thank you, Dr. Lee, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your hot off the press publication. Thank you for highlighting the important topic of gender inequity and possible solutions for emergency medicine by showcasing our article. And I should point out that it wasn't an 80s song for this episode, and that's because I had you pick the song. Do you want to say anything about this song that you picked for this episode? Well, you know it's an excellent song when your 15-year-old daughter gives it a thumbs up. Great to have you back on the SGEM Hop team, Justin. It was a pleasure as always. I was so happy to be part of such an important episode. And Dr. Lee, to finish the show, can you give the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Trust our differences make us stronger, not